You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Hey, welcome all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the uh, studio of Gangland Wire with my friend Cam Robinson on the line. We are going to do a story on Jerry Catena, Geraldo, or Geraldo. I wonder how you pronounce that. Cam, welcome. How you doing? Gary, how you doing? Glad to be here. <laughs> how do you think? You, pre- you think he pronounces that like Geraldo Rivera or Geraldo Catena? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's uh, Gerardo, but uh, I just call him Jerry. I think they couldn't figure it out, so they we'll just, just called call him Jerry. Jerry. It's kind of like Gary. He's got kind of a kind of a, uh, Irish or not Irish, but kind of a Scottish name there, a Welsh name, Gary. <laughs> Jerry. <laughs> right. But uh, first, I want to thank a few people out there uh, off the Venmo, particularly, and uh, some of you guys have hit the hit the button on my website to use your credit card, but. You guys that have the Venmo have hit me here recently, and it's a big help, folks. I want to tell you something. It's a big help. If nothing more, that just makes me feel better that I'm doing something that somebody cares a little bit about it. You know what I mean, Cam? Somebody gives you somebody gives you five Absolutely. bucks for something you've done. Absolutely. And it's like, well, I'll come back and try a little harder next time. Maybe I'll get ten. You know, but no, it, validation. That validation. Because yeah. I, you know, you're not out there and like I did, give a talk and people give me applause. Uh, it always seems kind of weird that people <laughs> get done after I get done talking about the mob and they'll applaud, but. Uh, I got Ted <laughs> Fotakis. Thanks a lot, Ted. He said, great podcast. Watch your movies. Your interviews are funny and entertaining. Thanks. Stephen Rowe said, podcast is good stuff. Casey Walsh, my old friend Casey Walsh, he said this was street tax. So Casey's got his street tax paid up for right now, Cam. There you go. <laughs> he got a kick got out. A kick in. Mark Ryan, happy fourth. Thank you, Mark. Mark's a regular on this uh, uh, deal, and, and I really appreciate it, Mark. He's paid street tax himself once, so he's paid up. But he he, he checked in on the 4th of July, too. <laughs> Dan Clockman to uh, to support the podcast, the Gangland Wire podcast. Uh, Shane Smith uh, just typed the words Gangland Wire podcast, and I think it means he likes the podcast. So I appreciate it, guys. It's uh, it's important to support the podcast. We don't, you notice we don't bore you with any long commercials or any kind of commercials. I did that, and I've got about five or six episodes back there, Cam, where I did a commercial. It was kind of fun. I made it into a fun deal, but but I, I don't know. I mean, if if I don't have to get commercials, and and I'd rather not. So right now I'm kind of at the mm-hmm. breaking point. If yeah. I pushed, I might be able to get a commercial. But I don't think it would pay me any more. Probably it wouldn't be worth it to me. You wouldn't get. I wouldn't get enough. You know, that first one I did only got fifteen dollars a show. That's not worth it. You know, screw it. You know, it's not worth no, it. No, not at this point. Take yeah, take up people's time. So we uh, we appreciate the podcast fans out there and all that they do and. And they keep us going enough that uh, it's not like we're trying to make a living off of this, are we, Cam? <laughs> no, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> now, I, I want to tell you not something, folks. I want, if you're a Facebook fan of Gangland Wire, I want you to start looking for Camulus Robinson out there posting some of the different uh, Facebook pages. He's got some interesting pictures from some research that he's done, and, and you're going to start seeing him get active on the different Facebook groups. He's going to start his own one of these days pretty soon, and and uh, he'll be posting right. stuff on mine. He's posting stuff on a lot of them. Uh, I noticed you run Chicago here recently. What was that? Uh, uh, what'd you post up there? It's only taken <laughs> me 15 years. I, I posted, uh, you know, Jan, I, I, that's right. The, uh, 
Posted an old picture of the armory from, uh, it looked about the, the, the early 60s. There's a 57 Bel Air Chevy sitting out there. And uh, I posted a picture of uh, uh, Alderman Darko, Union Boss Frank Esposito, when the uh, when Jackie Cerrone and Turk Torello and Dave Yaris were all down there hunting him, trying to kill him. The FBI was, was busy keeping him alive through different measures, and uh, the FBI didn't want uh, anyone to know they were keeping him alive because they didn't want anyone to know they were listening in. So I've got a lot of really good uh, uh, pictures on there. There's a lot of great pictures to start with. And it's only taken me, like I said, 15 years to get on uh, Facebook. But I am I am there now, and uh, I am learning my way around. And, and that was a good post and, and a good uh, interesting story, that go, or picture, an interesting pic story that goes with the post. Because as I commented on that yeah. one, that was the time when the FBI threw a bug in their uh, hotel room, I believe, didn't they? Yep. And, Absolutely, and they yeah. caught him bragging about and laughing about when they tortured Axon Jackson. And believe me, folks, if you're on Facebook and the Chicago pa- uh, Facebook pages, you've seen those horrid pictures of Axon Jackson's his body. They got somebody got all of these pictures of his naked body where they just tortured the heck out of this poor guy. Although Days. I think Facebook may not let him do it anymore. They may have banned those kind of pictures, or they put a. They put something over it when they see some kind of a gruesome picture like that, but it was it was bad. These guys were laughing about how they made this guy jump and twitch and everything. That's that's some cold dudes up there. I tell you yeah. what, man. And yeah, they don't play in Chicago. They don't play. I, like I said, I think I told you guys this that. Uh, I know I told Cab, I asked uh, uh, Frank Calabrese Jr., I said, what's up with you guys? You want to torture people before you kill them. I don't understand that, you know. I mean, <laughs> you know, you just kill them and get it over with. Or, I mean, it's not like you're asking them like a police, you know. you Police torture people to get them to confess or, you know, like the uh, <laughs> secret police over in, in some of these repressive countries. Now, we never tortured anybody to get them to confess, psychologically a little bit. Now, there have been policemen that have whacked people around and trying to get them to confess. I, I'll have to admit yeah, that. I, I didn't see it. Burke up here in Chicago torturing. Yeah, I, I didn't see it very much. I, I did walk past a guy interviewing a guy, and I saw him all of a sudden slap him real hard. I thought, oh, shit, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> but that was uh, that was not something that happened very yeah. often. It was in the old days. When I first came on. That was seventy two, seventy three. That it still happened. But by the time I got on up and was interviewing people and trying to get confessions, why well, they had the uh, much more sophisticated interrogation techniques. And and I know I had my own technique, and that was to uh, uh, get their confidence, be interested in them, sit close to them. And and convince them that I was their savior, that I was able to help them out of this thing, and and what they did wasn't all that bad anyhow. As once mm-hmm. you start down that path, and they kind of start, you know, like you start blaming the victim with them, you know, so well, you know, they killed a dude, you know, you know, he had it coming. I understand why somebody killed him, and you know, and and I can help you out here. It's probably you know. Probably self-defense, maybe even. I think you got a chance here. I'll be happy to help you out. And pretty soon, if if they like you and they feel comfortable with enough with you, pretty soon they'll they'll start telling you a little bit of the story and a little bit more and a little bit more. And then it's like their conscience gets them, and it's just like a, it'll all come gushing out at the end. But that, give, that's, give them that little ray of hope. In yeah, the give them that ray of hope, and and they'll start talking pretty soon. A lot of them. Some of them, the ones that one guy said, you know, he said I just kind of got a little tough with him at first, and I started out getting tough, and then you soften up. And he's he trying to get tough with me. He said, man, I've been cuffed from every end since I was about five years old. You can't talk. You can't convince me of anything. I said, okay, we're done here. <laughs> we're done here. <laughs> Anyhow, let's talk about. 
Gerardo Jerry Catina, born in 1902. Uh, he's an old-timer. He's one of the old-school dudes that uh, yeah. his parents, I'm sure, came over from uh, Sicily, more than likely. I think so, Italy. yeah. Uh, yes. He, as a young man, he got hooked up with the Jewish mob. Uh, Longy Zwillen worked for Willie Moretti. Boy, he, this is a lot of a lot of names here. <laughs> yeah, he was he was in deep. Uh, and what, was who in was deep. the inspiration for Luca Brasi? Uh, was that? Oh, so, that's right. Willie Moretti was the inspiration for Luca Brasi. Is is kind of how I've always heard it told. Is is uh, you know he was he was kind of the the muscle for Frank Costello, and they always kind of. When they wrote Luca Brasi, they had he had uh, Willie Moretti in mind, and when you see the pictures, he always kind of looked like uh, cool, like cool. Luca Brasi. Uh, you know, and and so that put him in connection, in close working relationship with all the mob bosses of the early uh, families, didn't it? Luckily, Luciano, yeah. Frank Costello, uh, Vito Genovese. Um, what I mean, they had a lot of stuff going on. Where did he fall into that? You know, he was he stayed in Jersey and. Because Willie Moretti was so well thought of, I mean, Willie Moretti was like the guy who met Joe Bonanno on the, you know, when he came in on the boat. Willie Moretti was sort of a, a, an older guy, so he was well thought of and kind of a mentor figure to these guys. So he fought in the Castellamorese War, um, uh, Gatena did, and he was part of that upcoming group of, uh, of mobsters that, that really formed... You know, created the foundation for a lot of for a lot of this for a lot of what we consider the mob now. Because he was tight with uh, Luciano and Costello, he sort of fell into the what would be the Luciano family, and then later on the Costello and Genovese family. He was out of he stayed in New Jersey. He was under Genovese the whole time. At that time, Genovese had uh, had New Jersey. William Reddy got syphilis and. They had to knock him off. Catena was always a really smart guy in Jersey. He eventually became a Genovese underboss. Is that right? Did I read that right? Correct. As Genovese moved up, he uh, uh, once he, he came back from deportation, he had to start a smear campaign against Costello, and it took him several years. And he went about getting his, his capos in line, guys like Tony Bender-Strollo, uh, the Catena brothers... These guys really came along, Tommy Eboli and Mike Maraglia, they came along to Genovese's side. They bought in with, with Genovese and thought that, yeah, Costello was, was letting things slip. And so when you see that change of power in 57, Genovese really had all the names with him. There was a couple holdouts. Little Augie Pisano stayed with Costello. But you really get that change of power in 57 when Genovese takes over. And because Catena was so close to Genovese, he took over all of Jersey. Once Vito moved on to, to head of basically all of New York, Catena gets promoted and he's running all Jersey operations. He's also the underboss of the family, basically, at, at that time. He, because he's running the Jersey side, that really is a huge position of power in the Genovese family. What, what I've read is and he, this guy was a moneymaker, man. He would, he, as, Absolutely. As he would so aptly put it, he would be what Sammy Gravano would tall, call a racketeer and a gangster. I mean, uh, uh, a racketeer, yeah. a, ra- a racket yeah. is uh, is one thing, you know, being a racketeer, you, a racket is more like uh, union, the union rackets, a protection racket. Yes. Uh, a gangster is a guy that goes out and kills people and, and robs people. And <laughs> as to me, that's always the breakdown yeah. between a racketeer and a gangster. Mm-hmm. A racket is, is something that is, it's a crime only if 
you do it in a certain way, like if you manipulate a union, exactly, if you extort money out of a, a bank, if you actually steal the money, it's an embezzlement, and that would be more like a gangster. But but if you're like you're selling them protection to keep them from uh, having some kind of union trouble or, or some other kind of trouble, then that would be a racket. <laughs> so <laughs> you know to to understand the difference in the two, they're you know they're pretty they're pretty close together. But but there is a subtle difference between a racketeer and a gangster. He could butter you up, but he could he could shoot you too. Uh, you know he had he had Longshore he had the Jersey Longshoremen's uh, twelve forty seven. He owned the Butchers Union. He had a piece of the Teamsters. He he owned uh, a couple of casinos. He had he had points in in a couple of casinos. He was making forty five thousand dollars a month from uh, a couple of casinos. He he was splitting a hundred with Meyer Lansky. He was a major stockholder in Bally. He split that with uh, with Casino. You know, they made uh, jukeboxes, uh, pinballs, and slot machines. He split that with uh, with uh, Chicago. They also had a, a large stake in Bally. So this guy was really, I mean, he would have. He's the kind of guy. When you hear a lot of people say, "Oh, they would have been CEOs of Warren for crime," Jerry Gatana really fits that bill. I mean, like you see, that's he's three or four unions, and and he's he's really diversified into casinos and and corporations. He owns a lot of businesses around town, and as as we'll see here in a minute, you know, he's also got his crew underneath him. So he he was really well diversified, and you've got guys under recordings talking about him in the '60s, talking about oh he's a, he's the richest guy in the mob, he's a millionaire many times over, just with his legitimate rackets. Jerry Catena was worth millions, and, and most of them in Chicago, except maybe for Anthony Accardo, they 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 just live like uh, a plumber, a good plumber, or a good electrician would live. Live like yeah. a policeman that got a you know maybe got up to promoted up to captain or something. They, even the highest ranking people. Uh, uh, live like kind of like a normal person who has gotten into middle management and whatever their business is. Uh, they all live just <laughs> like that. They drive cars like that and drive, and really have bank accounts like that for the most part. They may have a bunch of cash money hid out someplace or got points in the some business somewhere that they get some kind of under the table thing or like the skim coming from a casino. But even the skim coming from the the casino, he was dividing dividing that up all over the place. You know, he had to pay off his teamster. He had to pay off 10 guys that worked for him. that were his made guys. And of course it commands a lot of loyalty if you want something done. So it's not, a lot of them, I think it's not really for the money. It's more for the life and the power over people and, and to have that, that position and, you know, to what they wanted ever since they were a little kid <laughs> to be a big shot in the mafia as opposed to money. Now, this guy here, it was a lot about all about the money, it seems to me like. I, yeah, I, you know, a lot of these Jersey guys, you know, it, it really did have the big houses. Anastasia had a castle and a guy, uh, Richie the Boot, Boyardo, had a, had a bunch of statues of all his families in this massive house in Jersey. And, and I believe that Katana had a good sized house. So a lot of the Jersey guys really bucked the trend. And they were really money hungry. I know uh, Genovese had the big house, and that was kind of what was odd about the Jersey crew. And I think you see that in a lot of a lot of aspects of of, of <laughs> Jersey. Is they really do? It is sort of the more living large the Jersey Shore people. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. Now you got to be careful. We may have some fans in New Jersey. Now you're I, slandering everybody I, from you New know, Jersey. And <laughs> I love. I love my family from New Jersey up in Sussex and Butler and down uh, down towards the shore. I love my family. 
but there is a Jersey lifestyle, and whether you're a mobster or, or, or what have you, you, you adhere to the Jersey lifestyle. That's right. You adhere to the Jersey style, and, and God bless Jersey for it. I love, I do love Jersey. Well, uh, it's, it certainly is a diverse state, <laughs> I understand. You, you go over, it's called the, what, the Garden State, and you, and you go all the way from, from beautiful, you know, woods and, and out in the country, uh, uh, pastoral scenes to uh, Jersey City and, and nothing but, uh, well, what Tony Soprano sees on his way into to work every day, if you remember that, with Tony Soprano's view from his car on the way to work, you see uh, uh, all these oil oil plants, old oil refining plants and, and run down the warehouses and the, all the shipping's gone now out of New Jersey. And it's just, you know, known to be Cam, was it not Camden? That's a, that's a, Capital, I think, but I can't think of the other names besides Jersey City. That that kind of is the epitome of it. Although it's starting to build back up and get gentrified now, because you can you can take a boat. They build a whole bunch yeah. of really nice apartments and are really inexpensive, and you can take a fifteen Good. minute boat ride across at the East River, the Hudson River, uh, from from, Jer- from, jo- from Hoboken Jersey over Shore, Hoboken. That's the other one I was trying to think of. Uh, and you can take well, you can take a ferry, fifteen minute ride on ferry, and be right at Midtown Manhattan, and and be, you know jump on a train and be at your work in in thirty minutes or less. So, and it's a lot cheaper <laughs> to not have to live in Manhattan, as we all know. For the purposes of our story today, the Katana brothers, Gene and Jerry, owned a distribution firm called Best Sales. They sold goods and services throughout the area, uh, you know, wholesale goods. Best Sales got a big contract from a, a company called Ecology Corp, which was a subsidiary of the North American Chemical Company. And North American Chemical sold cleaning products and household goods. They had a, a detergent project product, and it went by a bunch of different names, uh, Bohack, uh, I believe at this time it was called PolyClean. I can only find one source for that, but I found a couple other sources that said it was Ecology and Bohack. So they had a bunch of different names on this one product. In the early 60s, this product was found to be dangerous to consumers. But North American Chemical had a bunch of it. They had already made up several batches and they didn't stop. There's a lot of ways to look at this. The North American needed to distribute this, so they sought out, either intentionally or unintentionally, the uh, Katana Brothers at Best Sales. I kind of think, looking at a business, looking, at, it's hard to believe that, that a distributor would not know that they were dealing with the mob in North Jersey. So North American contracts out Best Sales to distribute their dangerous-to-users product. Their sales jumped from $3 million to $5 million in one year. As Best Sales, the, the Katana's company becomes their exclusive distributor. Their methods are a little bit unorthodox. They owning their butchers, they they threaten to uh, to 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 go on strike to stop cutting meat for for stores that uh, for small grocers. They threaten the Teamsters threaten to refuse to deliver trucks to stores that won't buy uh, products from Best Services. They unless you buy a pallet, you know, will break all your windows, things like that. Really, Best Sales does great business of this uh, detergent. Their next project, they want to move on to the uh, Atlantic Pacific Tea Company, the A&P. It's the biggest, biggest grocery store up there. A&P does their research, and they discover that this detergent is is dangerous, they, so they don't want to carry it. The They learn that the best sales is a mob-owned company, and they want nothing to do with that. So the Katana brothers find this out, and Gene Katana is on an illegal wiretap saying he wants to knock A&P's brains in. 
And so this is the national corporation, and this is the mafia wants to wants to go to war with it. These Katana brothers. This is <laughs> this is how this is how we you know, go. Here, here in Kansas City, one time we were up on it had a microphone put in a it was called uh, reliable was it reliable produce or ABC produce. They always use these generic names like best product. <laughs> Anytime you got a company that says right. best products, you know, be careful. Right. <laughs> Some kind of real generic name. And they were selling uh, mainly condiments and things to bars. And uh, they had some contacts to sell produce and from the market. They'd go down and pick up the produce. Somebody else would store it, but they didn't own it. They would then go get it, and they'd have some bars that they were supplying and supplying produce, and but a lot of mainly a lot of condiments and uh, and like olives and and things that didn't have to be stored like a regular produce does. Uh, Non-perishable. So, so they were complaining about business was down and. They were just kind of talking back and forth, and Corky comes in, and, and he, you know, what you, what's going on here? Yeah, you know, business is down. You know, sales are way off this month. And he says, "What?" He said, "Here's what you got to do." He said, "You got to go around find these goombas and put some pressure on them." And then he named off several Italian last name people <laughs> in the city that were not buying from him. And, and so that was, you know, he looked then for looking for restraint, what we call restraint of trade, and. and uh, in the marketplace and, and extortion when it comes in it turns into extortion in the end more than likely but uh, that you know that's how they, how they easy, work yeah, easy, easy solution <laughs> easy solution <laughs> and, and you know all these things these guys were doing they just happen you know it's a small town a small Italian community and they just happen to grow up you know, in the Italian community, but it's a small community. And so everybody knows everybody and they know who has, you know, who's a bar owner, who's a restaurant owner. And, and so they just go yeah. out and say, Hey, you know, you got to buy from us. He didn't say exactly what they were going to do. But when Cork Savella says, we're going to put some pressure on his goombas to buy from, from our company here, you know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No real good sexy language on that say, thing, but you know what that means. You don't say no. Yeah, do not say no. Nope. Offer they cannot refuse, as the man said. <laughs> I tell you what, when they coined that term, that, that uh, Mario Puzo, that was, when he wrote that he line. <laughs> on the money, wasn't he? Little did he know people would use that for him. <laughs> I want to write a line like that. Shit. Do you think he got that from real from reality? You think he uh, got that? From I don't. Some? You know, shit. I don't. I don't know. You know, I know that situation is supposed to be like uh, that was actually happened with Willie Moretti and Tommy Dorsey talking about uh, uh, Frank Sinatra's contract when he was in Tommy Dorsey's big band. I don't. Uh, I don't. I, I think that probably Puzo came up with that line. It's just a damn good line that a young writer might come up with. So anyhow, I, I digress. We're we're here with they're putting pressure on the the A and P to buy this polyclean stuff, which is dangerous to consumers. Tell you what's more con more dangerous to consumers is the the Katana Brothers. 1964 Molotov cocktails thrown into an A and P in Yonkers and it burns to the ground. June of 64 Molotov is thrown in in Peekskill, New York. August, another bomb burns out a store on First Avenue in Manhattan. Dang. December of 64, they burn down a fourth store in the Bronx. They don't get the message then, so January of 23rd, an A&P manager, uh, James Walsh, is driving home. His tire feels a little bit flat. He pulls over to check it. And car pulls up and shoots him to death. February, yeah, February 5th, 
the Bronx A&P manager, John Mosner, was driving home to his place in Elmont. He gets out of his car in the driveway. Gunman pulls up and kills him. And then April of 65, another A&P in the Bronx is firebombed. And while this is going on, the Butcher's Union is negotiating a new contract with A&P. They're making these outrageous demands that, that A&P could never meet, talking about a two-hour workday and all kinds of ridiculous things. And then the Teamsters local is telling A&P at all their stores that if the butchers go on strike, more like when the butchers go on strike, they will refuse to cross the picket line. So A&P will have no trucks coming into their stores if the butchers go on strike, and the butchers are guaranteeing they're going on strike. So A&P's like, what the hell is going on? Like, our entire operation is shut down. They don't even know what the cause is. So the FBI has their, their wiretaps going. They know what's going on, but this is still at the point when they don't want the mob to know that they've got wiretaps everywhere. So their hands are kind of tied in that they, they want to communicate this information, but they can't say where they got it. So they call Jerry Catena before a federal grand jury, and he says, I don't know what you're talking about. They're like, oh, you've been uh, shopping at the A&P lately. They couldn't prosecute because of how they got the information, but he kind of understood that they were watching him. He didn't know how they kind of were watching him. So he did step back, and they let the A&P go. The whole time, A&P didn't ever know what was going on with their stores. They just thought they were having a terrible run of bad luck. They never, they never really got it. So in 1967, North American Chemical decides that they're going to discontinue their relationship with Best Sales. I guess they've gone as far as they can go. And the Catanas say, well, it's going to cost you $24,000 a year for the next 13 years to buy out our contracts, whether we work for you or not. North American Chemical, basically, that's you're looking at about close to $300,000 a year, which is fine because that's significantly less than 10% of, of the profits that North American made from working with the Katana brothers. So really, the Katana brothers probably should have asked for a little bit more. Later in 1970, after the Katana brothers had shut down and moved on, North America was still in business, and the government seized close to a thousand cases of this toxic detergent, and they had just changed the name to Ecology and Bohack. Even with the Katana brothers gone and paid off, having made less than 10% of, of this huge corporation's profits, the corporation, 10 years later, is still selling this toxic detergent. They've just changed the name. It sounds to me like, you know, before I read that, I thought, oh, this poor, this, this poor business is being taken, taken advantage of by these mob guys. But I think these mob guys were taken advantage of by this damn, by this damn North American chemical. They, they brought them in. They did all their dirty work. They didn't even give them 10%. And then as soon as they moved on, they're still selling this damn dangerous detergent. I, I think that North American is the real gangsters here. And they, and they got the contract with A&P, which was the big duck back then. That was the big store back then. Once you, if you get, it's like getting something in Walmart today. You can, yeah, absolutely. You got invention. I got a buddy that did some inventing stuff, and he came up with this one thing that was kind of, it was more like a one-off deal that was kind of a impulse buy if you wanted it. And and he almost got into Walmart. He knew if oh. he got into Walmart and they put these things on an end cap, you know, his his future was assured. Oh my God! And at very last, he just couldn't quite pull get the trigger pulled on it with whoever. You got to hire somebody to go negotiate with Walmart, but to get something into a big store like it, a big chain, get your product in that. It's uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I got another buddy I went to law school with. They uh, they developed a uh, barbecue sauce in a rub they were 
working back east there, working for a congressman or for a senator. And so they developed this barbecue rub and sauce called it Pork Barrel Barbecue and, and uh, sold it in, just to friends. And, and it kept going, kept going. They got on the shark hunt, and, uh, shark tank. Shark, shark tank, shark, yeah, shark, shark tank. Shark tank. And they got the gal, uh, I think her name's Barbara, the short-headed blind gal, and she went in business with them, and then she got them some contracts with, like, uh, uh, Sam's Clubs and, and someplace Ooh. elsewhere. And see, w- once they did that, then their future was assured. Absolutely. Uh, you know, they, it's just amazing uh, what can happen if you get a contract with one of those big companies like that. So these guys got it into the A&P stores using their strong yeah. arm tactics. Yeah. You know, God, I need, I need to, I need to hire the containers to get my movies. In, uh, <laughs> Who are you telling? <laughs> get into one of these big chain stores into Barnes and Noble with my book and everything into Barnes and Noble. That's, <laughs> that was, you know, and, and the mob owned all the movie theaters back in the day. That was they owned the theaters and they had this. So that's that's yeah. They and the, all the jukeboxes, so they control the all the music and everything. Yeah, music. Yeah, absolutely. That's the story we got to look at is, hey. is the mob. I just looked at that once and I did some uh, research on it, the mob in influence in the music business because mm-hmm. during those times with payola the dish jockeys were taking money to play certain songs and and they had a they had a real lock on the music oh, business yeah. for a little short period of time it seemed mca like. but uh, so that's uh, uh corporate america is the real mobsters more than the, <laughs> they beat the they beat the katanas at their own game uh, of course the katanas did. made their money and moved on you know they uh, that's right uh, just just got a taste they didn't have they didn't have to deal with the uh, uh, aftermath of having this bad detergent out there. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else had to deal with that. They that's washed their hands. Uh, eventually, you know that's why you have the EPA and those different uh, the FDA and all that. Because so, there's people out there willing to do things like this, and, and they don't care about people as long as they can make money. And, yeah. And the mobs, uh, you know, mob associates usually they'll they'll finance a guy like that. We got a guy here in Kansas City; he's dead now, just died, Bob Ferrara, and and he was constantly selling crappy things to people. And but he was a hell of a salesman. He, Snake oil salesman. Oh man, he was good. He, and and he was on juice all the time. I finally found out what his connection was. He he was not a guy that was really in. But I found out he was on juice loans all the time, so he was constantly having to come up with all these scams. Oh, and, and he would only come up with scams and make more money in order to pay this uh, pay interest <laughs> rates. <laughs> <laughs> he came up in the height of in the seventies, uh, the height of the fuel oil sales when the, the prices were so high, and there was like a. Uh, you know, they shut down the spigot in Saudi Arabia, and, and gasoline prices were high, and fuel oil prices prices were skyrocketing. And Jimmy Carter got on the TV and said, "Just wear your sweater and turn your <laughs> thermostats down to seventy five degrees or something." <laughs> and, uh, basically, cost him the presidency. That right. uh, the Iranian, uh, yeah, deal. The- but. Uh, uh, but people did not like that fuel oil shortage that was trying to stay warm in the winter. And, and this guy came up; he was going to sell insulation and people were buying insulation with their houses like crazy but he sold crappy ass insulation and and he hired salesmen and salesmen would go out and it was real high priced and and they'd go out and sell their relatives two or three and then he wouldn't pay them their commission he just hire more salesmen <laughs> he, he, he pioneered that with vacuum cleaners these 500 hundred dollar vacuum cleaners he pioneered that sales technique getting young people to come in and they'd sell grandma a high-end vacuum cleaner and they'd make like a 150 dollar 
commission on it, what was seem a really high commission, this guy would make about $300 on the sale, and then he wouldn't pay their commission and and, uh, and just fire the kid and and get another kid to go out and sell. And he, did, he just would continually did that all his life. It's good work if you can get it. And he was a hell of a salesman, and he could sell these kids and these young people to go out and sell his products for him. Uh, it, was just, it was amazing. I sent an informant into him, but she got scared. <laughs> she was she went in there and asked for a job, and they were going to set her up in the sales training class. But they were like, she was good looking, and and these guys were kind of, you know, she just mm-hmm. got a weird vibe from them. So she said, yeah, and she was not a police officer or anything, and she was little, just a young gal that little, thought she wanted to be a cop, and I, I got her to go do this. A <laughs> little too rapey to sell vacuums. Yeah, yes. Uh, she, uh, she could not pull it off. She ended up being a cop and had a whole long career, but she was not going to go back in and work undercover as a attractive young woman again. (laughs) (laughs) I think she did some narcotics work, but she had about, you know, like five goons close by just waiting if anything happened, they come storming in. I just sit her down on her own. (laughs) It was a pretty nice (laughs) deal, really. (laughs) But we used to do stuff like that back in the day. (laughs) Today, the management would blow, you did what? (laughs) (laughs) Times changed. (laughs) Yes. Actually, I never told anybody I did that. You're in it now. So anyhow, well, that's the story of Jerry Katina and the great A&P ripoff or uh, uh, extortion, I guess you would call that. That was a good one. It was a good one. It was good. I appreciate you looking that up and finding that, Cam. (laughs) All right, Cam, I appreciate it as usual and uh, great research here. And it's a great story. And podcasters out there appreciate it, I know. And uh, we will uh, talk to you later. Absolutely. Bye, Cam. Take care. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from PTSD that's connected to your service time, call your local vet center or the local VA hospital in your area, or there's a national hotline, 1-800-273-8255, and press 1 if you're a vet. You can go to www.ptsd.va.gov, and this site contains a lot of uh, interesting information and a lot of good resources. When the COVID's over, as we say, when the COVID-19 virus is over and everybody's getting back to work, you can hit me up for a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on my Venmo app, Gangland Wire. I've got my two movies out there, Brothers Against Brothers, The Sabella Spiro War, and Gangland Wire, which is the kind of the story behind the movie Casino, the story about the mob war in Kansas City that led to the uncovering of the skimming information. Got Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Get the Kindle version. You can link the, uh, I've linked the wiretaps, actual audio from wiretaps to sections in the book. Good evening, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.